All right, today, if you have your Bibles, Philippians 2, we're kind of at the end of the chapter, all right? We're talking about a guy named Epaphroditus. We're going to call him Fro because it's too hard to say. Now, again, Paul writing a letter back to a town, to a church he established in a town called Philippi, all right? That's his people, his church. Epaphroditus is from Philippi, and so he has delivered a message, and he's, delivered a, he's brought a gift from them to him, and Paul is writing about him. He said, meanwhile, I, I thought I should send uh, Fro back to you. He's a true brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. Now, the one thing about this guy is, um, by the way, quick survey. How many people have ever heard of Epaphroditus before today? It's a pretty uncommon dude, right? I mean, he's in Philippians 3, uh, 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, and he's in Philippians 4. He's mentioned a couple of times. The thing I like about him is he's incredibly, well, the word I would use is common. He's just common folk. Now, let's review just a little bit, all right? Let's review. Because Paul, in, in the first of chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, um, humbly submit to God, serve him without complaining. And then he gives us some examples. He, he says uh, in chapter 2 early on, um, your, your attitude should be the same as Christ, who was willing to sacrifice to the point of death on the cross. Now, I don't know by anybody's standards, that's pretty high level stuff. Jesus, I mean, this is our example. And, and yes, he's our example, but some of us feel like it's so far beyond us, we can't do that. So he sets up other examples. And Paul says, uh, look to me, look to me. I could be an example for you. Well, okay, you're an apostle. You saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. You wrote much of the New Testament. You started churches all over the place. You were willing to die for your faith. Again, it's a little beyond some of us, maybe all of us. Then he says, like last week we talked about Timothy. Well, Timothy was a great preacher. He was a great leader. He, he had these gifts. Remember we talked about how uniquely qualified he was because he wasn't just Jewish. He was also Greek. And the Philippians were more Greek than Jewish. And so he was uniquely qualified to, to be an ambassador to that church and to other churches in Greek countries because he understood the culture. Well, that didn't many of us either. So he sets these examples for us. Jesus, good grief, the bar is really, really high. Paul, the bar is really high. Timothy, the bar is still pretty high. And now he talks about this guy named Epaphroditus. Now his name is kind of interesting, and it was pretty common, by the way. It's not common today. Nobody uses it today. But like we have names like John and Joe and Mike. They're kind of common. You know, I, I've got one of those names, kind of common names. Epaphroditus was pretty common. It, it literally meant favored by the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love and, and those sorts of things. But she was also the goddess of good luck. And so if you were betting on uh, the Kentucky Derby yesterday, uh, back in this time, uh, you would say to the person who placed a wager, uh, Epaphroditus, good luck. And guys, uh, gentlemen, young, young guys, um, it also came to be known as beautiful. Uh, the word Epaphroditus meant beautiful or charming. 
And so if you want to really impress the, the gals at school tomorrow, you could, you could say, girl, you're looking so epaphroditus today. I mean, you could do that tomorrow. You should give that a go because I'm pretty sure that will go good for you. Uh, so um, his name was even sort of common. And what I like about him is he's kind of like us. There's nothing wrong with being common. I've been common all my life. My daddy was a truck driver. My mother was a homemaker. We're just common. I'm common people. I talk about, you know, there are pinto beans and cornbread kind of folks in the world, and I'm one of them, and many of us are too. And yet, even though we are pretty common, we can do some extraordinary things when God blesses us and allows us, and when we serve Him and do it to our best, because every little act of service is important. Now, Paul, you'll recall, wrote this letter while he was in jail. Uh, he was falsely accused. He's in prison. Um, he's in prison, uh, or he's in a house arrest, basically. But he's chained to a Roman guard. Uh, every four hours, a different guard is chained to him the, uh, the whole time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a, a year. Paul, for two years, has been under house arrest. Now, unlike America, when you were uh, imprisoned, you had to pay for your own way. You had to pay for your own food. You had to pay for your own care. And so Paul had no way of making an income. And so the Philippians understood this. And they took up a collection, like an offering. Um, and they gathered these monies together. And they sent them to Paul to help sustain his life. I mean, it's really important. When you can't work, when you can't make your living... Uh, sometimes people who were incarcerated just simply died because they couldn't feed themselves. Well, they understood this. And so the, the, the Christians in Philippi took a collection and they sent it to Paul. And the guy that took the money was our friend Fro. He was the guy they entrusted. He, he was basically, he, you know, he wasn't an apostle like Paul. He wasn't a great teacher or leader like Timothy. He wasn't the son of God like Jesus. He was a messenger boy. That's all he, I mean, he just, he, he, he took a gift. He, he was a delivery man. And, and yet, he, here's our big idea for the day. This is incredibly important. And truly, it's, it's revolutionary if you think about it. When serving Jesus, every act of service is important. Every one of them. Everything we ever do, we should do to the best of our ability because Every act of service is important. So the people right now who aren't in this room are in that room taking care of our children. Incredibly important. Because we can sit in this room and do our thing and, and it, it, we don't have babies crying and those sorts of things because there are people who are sacrificing their time to be behind this wall. Very important. The people uh, that uh, pick up the bagels. Very important. Because we need sustenance. Uh, the people that buy the coffee. The, the people that bring um, the things here to, to set up. Uh, the ones who hand out programs. The people who plant the plants. The people who mow the yard. Everything that we do is really important. Because if you don't do it, you notice that it's not been done. I mean, have you ever been in the restroom someplace and somebody didn't put any toilet paper there? Is that important? Yes, it is. Very important. So, 
Every little thing, we might consider a little thing, it's really important. And so Epaphroditus didn't do anything phenomenal. He wasn't particularly remarkable. He simply brought a gift. And yet, and yet, somehow, he gets into the New Testament. It's because every gift, no matter how big or small, every act of service that we do for Jesus is incredibly important. I, I love this story about this man because it gives me encouragement that the little things that we do make a big difference. So, what are the traits? What kind of stuff? What common things did Fro do that we can do? Because he didn't do anything remarkable. He just did common stuff. So let's look at him. One of the common traits that God uses in Fro and in us is cooperation. Now, cooperation is an attitude. It's simply, I'm going to choose to work together. I'm going to choose to work together. Now, look what it says here. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, and he was your messenger who brought that nice gift that I needed to sustain my life. He brought it to me. Now, one of the things when you're reading the Bible, you need to notice some of the details. Paul talks about Epaphroditus in kind of three ways here. He uses three different titles. When you get a title, it's important, okay? And so they, he uses three different titles here. He calls him a brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier. Let's talk about those just for a second. When he says he's my, my brother, he, he's saying, uh, spiritually speaking, we have the same Heavenly Father. And in, 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 uh, as it concerns my soul... He's my soul brother, right? We are spiritually linked because we are both connected to Christ. He's my brother. And then he talks about he's a co-worker. Uh, you sent him to help me. He has uh, assisted me here. So not only are we spiritually connected, we are task connected. We're on the same team trying to do the same things. And then he says he's a fellow soldier. And it's a really cool word. The Greek word is Stratios, uh, you, you can hear the word strategy in there, or as George Bush would say, strategery. Uh, you can hear the word. and uh, what he, it, it's, a, it's kind of an uncommon word that he used, this a fellow soldier. It, it basically means not just a grunt, but somebody who is thinking about the mission and uh, developing the plan for the mission. He's a strategist. He's a thinker. He's not a common foot soldier. He, he is a fellow uh, ambassador for the mission, is what, what he's saying. Now, in Christian life, we, ha we have to understand a couple of things. We're a family. We're a family. We're a family who looks to be ever larger. You know, we want our family to grow. Our church is a family, right? Uh, 133 times, Paul in the New Testament says, uh, calls people brothers and sisters and family. So we, we're a family. We're, we're to get along as a family. Also, we're a fellowship. We're, we're about the same task. And the task is to go and make disciples. I mean, the Great Commission hasn't changed for 2,000 years. So our task as a church, our task as individual Christians, is to help people find a, a freedom in Christ. This is our mission. But we also have to understand that we have an enemy, so we're in a fight. It's a fight. We have someone... Uh, an adversary, the Bible says he uh, roams around like a roaring lion, 
uh, we have an adversary who attempts to throw us off our game when we're about uh, our mission in life. Let me read a verse for you. Paul wrote this one too, just to a different church. But he said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony. Because every family feels better when it's in harmony. I've got two sisters I get along with really, really well. I'm very thankful about that. I've got four daughters who get along with each other very, very well. I'm very thankful for that. Because when you come into a home... I don't know if you all know this about girls, but sometimes they argue with one another. Have you know? I mean, did you all know that? Because uh, that's true. And it could be over really, really dumb things, like boys. Uh, and so uh, um, I always knew when, when I walked in the door, I could tell if there was tension. And if there was tension, I would go to my room and lock the door uh, because I didn't really want to be around that. Now, I also knew when it, there was harmony. Because harmony with girls typically led to, at least in my house, uh, laughter. When, when they come home and they're good with each other, they laugh, they sing, they giggle, they, they're just, they're, you, there's a spirit in the room. And so he's saying, live in harmony with each other. Let there be no division in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Paul talks about this all the time because everything we do is important and so when somebody hands you a program when somebody uh, um, opens a door uh, all those little things are really important we have to remember every little sacrifice and every little thing that we do to serve it is it's about the mission you know we're when we make guests feel welcomed as a church family when we in, invite them into our homes, when, when we uh, treat people the way God wants us to treat them, when we welcome and invite, when we love people, no matter what they're about, we're reflecting the love of Christ, and that is really strategically important. That's why Paul talks about it so much. We have to be of one mind. People matter to God, and therefore they matter to us. People need Jesus, and we can help them find Jesus. We are really important in the big scheme of things because Jesus chose to use the church to spread the good news of Christ to everybody. It's pretty remarkable. This is a guy named Chuck Yeager. If you're older, you may know who he is. He was sort of a, a, a famed test pilot, and, and the plane behind him there is the F-86 Sabre, and he flew this, and and one day he was flying, now, you know, this is phenomenal to me because there are people that can do these kind of things, but he was flying in this plane and he decided, uh, he was near a friend's house, so he was going to kind of buzz the guy's house at several hundred miles an hour, upside down, 150 feet off the ground. I mean, who does that? So basically, this guy is insane, uh, is kind of what, but, but he was going to do that, so he turned his plane upside down. He's 150 feet off the ground. He's going at you know three or four hundred miles an hour. And when he turns his plane upside down, there, there's this there's this mechanism on the wings. It's called an aileron. Aileron. Uh, aileron. Uh, aileron. It's right here. Uh, right there. A i l e r o n. And a a that thing locked. The thing I just said that I spelled for you that locked. Now. 
The one thing that you don't want to happen if you're upside down 100 feet, 150 feet off the ground going several hundred miles an hour is for that thing to lock because it'll take you right down. Now, Jaeger was experienced. He knew this had killed three or four pilots, this, this locking of this particular mechanism. And so he uh, eased, kind of got out of the gas a little bit. He, he brought the plane up, and it came unlocked. Kind of turned it back over, it came unlocked. So he climbs to about 15,000 feet, so he can do this maneuver again. Now, again, he survived it once, so he does it again, because... You have to figure out why, right? Because that's the way he thinks. So he did it several times. Every time he turned it upside down, this mechanism would lock. And so he'd flip it back over and unlock. And he did it three or four times. So when he landed, he went to his supervisors. They knew that there was a problem. They just couldn't find the problem. They'd looked at it before. And come to find out, they did some investigation, and they, they found that the culprit was an older gentleman on the assembly line who had installed the aileron system. And this is what he had done wrong. Any, anybody that's ever been a mechanic knows that when you put a bolt in, when you bolt two things together, you put the head on the top, typically, and you put the nut on the bottom. This is kind of standard procedure. Well, instructions were that you put the bolt in from the bottom and put the nut in on the top. Now you'd think, well, what difference does it make? This guy said to himself and then to the investigators, by golly, I know that you're supposed to put a bolt in from the top down, not the other way. I, I've been putting them in from the top down. The problem was that when he put the bolt in from the top down, it caused this thing to lock. The engineers knew this. The designers of the plane knew it. They knew what, what needed to be done. This fellow in a plant somewhere decided that he knew better. Every little detail is important. I, I mean, him doing it the wrong way cost people their lives. A bolt on an airplane, really important. So we have to have cooperation because it, it's our job to notice the details, to, to do things to our best. Cooperation, number one, it's a common trait. The second thing is compassion. We all can have compassion. Compassion is this ability to see the need of someone else and, and, and to feel for them and to help them if we can. Look at what he says. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you and, and was very distressed that you heard he was ill. Now, I, I want you to get this. If we sent out a mission team, Let's say we send a mission team to Haiti. And we hear that of the ten people we send from our church to Haiti, one of them has become ill. Do you think we would just sort of blow that off, or would we want information? I mean, we have instant communication. We would call the leader of the team, and we would say, hey, keep us posted on what's going on with so-and-so, because we want to pray, and we want to know. And we'd post it on Facebook, and the world would know. I mean, it's kind of how it would work, right? So, um, here he, he's gone away, this non-instant communication, and they're worried about him. In fact, the word there, distressed, he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. It, it sort of has the feeling of, um, well, here's one, how one commentator uh, expressed it. He was worn out and overpowered with heavy grief. 
Remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he said this? He said, my soul is deeply grieved. It's the same word. My soul is distressed, he said, to the point of death. This wasn't just homesick like you go to camp and your kid gets homesick. This was, I am worried, I, I am discombobulated because you are worried for me. So Paul is basically saying, I am sad that he is sad that you are sad. So I'm going to feel good because I'm going to send him back to you, which will make him feel good, and you'll feel good. I mean, that's, that's kind of how it works. He, he, he was distressed that people who loved him were worried about him. Now, every parent understands this, and probably no kid does. Because I remember as a kid, my, my parents would say stuff like, you know, if you're going to be late, call us. Y'all ever have that conversation? So, I, my curfew was 12. My daddy would say, anything, nothing good happens after 12. That, that was kind of his thing. And if anything bad happens after 12, you're a suspect. That's what my daddy would say. And so, it's like, okay, daddy. So, if you're going to be out past 12, you have to give us a call so we know where you are. Now, as a kid, as a you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old kid, uh, 25, I forget now, uh, but uh, uh, however old I was, um, as a kid, I, I would think, how foolish. As, as a dad, I, I think, how brilliant, right? Um, this group of Christians in Philippi loved this young man. We're, we're assuming as a young man. They, they loved him, and they worried for him, and they were worried about him. In, in an act of compassion, they wanted to know how he was doing. And so Paul was like, you know, my heart is broken because your heart is broken, and his heart is broken because your heart is broken. I'm sending him back to you. C compassion is something that we have opportunities all the time to display. Today when you came in, you might have noticed we're, every year we take up an offering for the Piedmont Women's Center, and we have baby bottles out there, and you take one of those and you put your change in it or bills or whatever you want to, and we're going to give those away for a couple of weeks, and we're going to collect them next, uh, next Sunday is Mother's Day. We're going to give them away next, mother, um, next week as well. And then the, the week after that, we're going to collect them. And, and the Piedmont Women's Center, is a, uh, we're, I'm very excited that we as a church sponsor and help them. And, and the baby bottle collection last year paid for their free ultrasound that they give uh, women who are having crisis pregnancies. Last year, they gave away about 600 of those ultrasounds. And from those, they know of at least 300, half the, the women who had these ultrasounds, um, who had a choice between ending that baby's life or not, chose not to. And so one of the ways we show compassion as a church is we take up that offering and so when you exit today, as you turn right, those baby bottles are on a table. My friend Paul and Paul are going to be out there, and they'll be happy to, to hand you one. And, and you take that in a couple of weeks' worth of, of change. I, I've been collecting for a while because I knew this was coming up, and, and so I'm going to give to that. But it is such a worthy cause. And we as followers of Christ, we find ways to share. Uh, we find ways to be compassionate with those who are, the most needy, 
that's one way that we do it. Third thing, third common thing is commitment. We all can have commitment. Now look at this. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one so sorrow after another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you for I know you'll be glad to see him and then I'll not be so worried about you. He's basically saying the report you heard was accurate. The, the Latin is gravitas banana peleus. He had one foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. That, that is the Latin. The Latin. Gravitat banana peleus. You didn't know that. Now you know. Now, the, the word that he uses for ill there, it, it could be like a physical sickness. It could be a, a, in danger. Could it be that he was just in danger? Welcome him uh, with Christian love and greet, uh, with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve. Now look at this. For he risked his life for the work of Christ. Super interesting. Um, sometimes it doesn't translate well in English. You know, the, the Bible, he wrote this in Greek. And the Greek language is sort of complex and, and very precise. And we don't always get... It, we have great translations. I don't mean for you to not trust your Bible. But sometimes we miss some of the nuance of the language. <laughs> so what's really interesting is, remember, um, Epaphroditus means good luck. Like, when you roll the dice, if you go to Vegas, and I know maybe you've been there, and somebody's rolling the dice and they throw it, and sometimes they'll say, you know, Mama needs a new pair of shoes. You ever heard that? Well, Vegas back then, they would say Epaphroditus when they threw the dice, okay? Now, what's super interesting is, for he risked his life. The word risk is a, a gambling term. Like, he rolled the dice. For Christ is what he, he risked. He he made a, a wager, <laughs> and he was lucky. His name, you know, he was lucky. He he didn't die. Um, he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you wished you could do from afar. It's, it's, it's a really cool, a really cool text. So the truth is, God is looking for people who put the cause of Christ before comfort. Now, whether he had risked his life, and, and many scholars believe it was a, about martyrdom. He, he had risked his life. I mean, it was like nobody liked Paul. Um, he came to Rome. Rome was not very friendly to Christians. In fact, it gets worse after Paul dies. But the society doesn't like Christians. Certainly, uh, the authorities didn't like Paul. To be associated with a criminal like that was troublesome. He, he made this, this, great, this great risk. And in, in Scripture, it talks about how we have this opportunity to sacrifice. And a question we ask ourselves is, are we sacrificing? And Jesus once said, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. I mean, what, what are we willing, willing to risk? Let me tell you this little story about this little boy and... He was out in the back playing, and his, he was at his grandmother's house, and she sort of went to the door to check on him, and she heard him say, hell. She calls him in, and she says, Matthew, you can't say that word. And he said, but Pastor Joseph said it. Like, well, when did he say it? And he said, at the wedding the other day. And she was like, well, when did he say hell at the wedding the other day? And he said, well, when he was given the vows, do you take this woman in sickness and in hell? 
And if that was the commitment, man, that is some commitment if you make that one. And some of you are thinking that you may have. And uh, I, I get that. We go through difficulties to get to a certain place, right? I mean, the, the problem I have with health and wealth gospel is that it, it's so phony because God never promised. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I mean, it's not like he bait and switched us. This life is difficult. We get through difficulties because it strengthens us and it helps others get through difficult times. We, we can allow difficulty to make us stronger or or to turn us from God. I mean, we, we choose how we look at problems. And so God allows us to go through problems sometimes to make us better. The health and wealth gospel, the notion is every problem is, is not from God. Well, maybe it's to help me. Maybe it's to challenge me. Maybe it's to grow me. No pain, no gain. You've heard this, right? And so... On the other side, maybe today, maybe this life that we're living now, there are some struggles. But ultimately, there's, there's a reward. Let, let me show you. Oh, this is, this is great. So we must get rid of everything that slows us down, especially the sin that just won't let go. And we must be determined to run the race that is ahead of us. We must keep our eyes on Jesus, who leads us and makes our faith complete. He endured the shame of being nailed to the cross... There was a reason, because he knew that later on he would be glad he did. We go through sufferings because later on we'll be glad we did. I'm, a, I'm kind of a half glass half full kind of guy. I'm an optimist. When, when I'm going through difficulties, the Bible teaches things like, like seasonalities of things. You have seasons of drought, which are immediately followed by seasons of plenty. There are seasons. There's a... Time to be born and a time to die. It's in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's kind of this lesson in seasonality. Sometimes I'm down and sometimes I'm up. God's with me through both those seasons, right? I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. It, it's like the little lady at the nursing home and the new guy shows up, first time there, and he's eating lunch, and she's sitting right across the table from him, and she just stares at him, and he's very uncomfortable with this, and he said, after a while, he said, what are you looking at? And she said, you know, you remind me of my third husband. And he said, how many husbands have you had? She said, two. Now, that, that's hope. That's hope. I'm going to end with a story because I, I want us to, to hammer home the point that when we're serving Jesus, every, every job is important. Every detail is important. It's a picture of Winston Churchill. The darkest days of World War II, Britain's freedom was challenged. And they had a great army, of course, but they also had men in the coal mines. And coal was strategic in powering the country and the military. But there was a problem because men in the coal mines, it's a job in a coal mine. Now, soldiers go off to war, and if they come back, and sometimes they come back, they have great acclaim. It's dangerous, but there's a reward at the end. And if you make it back, then, and, and these coal miners were seeing, look, I'm in a coal mine and nobody appreciates what I'm doing, and yet these guys are going off to war, but when they come back, they are touted. So men were leaving the coal mines to go to war. 
Well, you'd think that'd be a good thing, except they needed coal. So Churchill stood up in front of hundreds of coal miners. And he gave a speech. And it was brilliant. Because he, he, he lauded the need for coal. He told them that their very freedom depended on having enough power to run the military and the country. That, that their jobs weren't just in a dark hole someplace, but they literally empowered the nation. And as only Churchill could do, he, he begins to paint a picture for them. He's talking about a victory parade at the end of the war. And he says, first in line will be our men in the Navy. And they'll pass through. And then the best and the brightest, the British Air Force will be next. And they will have fought off the Luftwaffe. And they'll be next in line. And then our army will walk through and there'll be cheers. And behind them will be the men of the coal mines with their faces blackened. And they'll walk through the streets. And if someone were to ask, why are they included in the parade? He, he said to them, he said, you will tell them that while others fought, we were in the mines supplying the coal for a nation to maintain her freedom. And as the story goes, these hardened miners heard that speech. And they heard how important they were. And with tears running down their cheeks, they went back into the mines with steely resolve because they knew their task, though no one particularly saw it, was vitally important. When we serve Jesus, every act of service, everything that we do, is important. Father, we thank you for using common people like Epaphroditus and like me, and like us. We're thankful that you love us, that you care enough about us to let us serve you. And we pray that we might begin to look at our tasks in life as opportunities to serve you. And when we see those tasks, remind us that when we serve you, everything that we do is important. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.